You know, it can be incredibly disconcerting to reach that stage in life, much earlier than you thought it would get here, when your kids start teaching you, particularly your adult kids start teaching. Now, let me say this. It's really cool when it happens. It's kind of like, wow, that, that thing grew up in my house. Look at that. But it's, it's weird when it starts happening. A few weeks ago, or maybe even months ago now, we were at our house, our whole family had kind of gathered up for a meal or whatever, and we're just hanging out. And I don't remember what spurred this part of the conversation. I think we were watching something on TV, and, and I, I just kind of started venting about whatever it was that we were watching. I honestly don't remember what it was. I just kind of was like, just kind of venting. And at one point, I made this comment about somebody on TV that, in my opinion, just didn't get it. And so I said, they just don't get it. It's kind of a very get-off-my-lawn moment. You know what I'm talking about? And my daughter, Emily, our daughter, Emily, who's 26 years old, she said very respectfully, Dad, I, I agree they don't get it, but isn't there, isn't there a way that we can engage with people like that and, and listen to them and respect them so that they can hear and, and maybe they can get it? I said, Emily, you're grounded. She goes, Dad, I'm 26. She was dead right, and I was dead wrong in that moment about that one thing. But I thought about that because one of the, <clears throat> one of the unifying threads of the Christian faith is that in and of ourselves, left to our own devices with no intervention from God or the Holy Spirit transforming our minds and our hearts, apart from the intervention of God in our lives, in a very real way, nobody gets it. You don't get it. I don't get it. It is an act of grace on God's part that any of us ever gets it. So here's what I want you to do with a smile on your face. And because it's, it's Sunday morning, you, you got to sleep in, you're the 11 o'clock service, You've been properly caffeinated. I want you to turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face, encourage them, and tell them you don't get it. Now, as we've said before, some of you may have enjoyed that too much, but it's a fact that it is only by God's grace that we do, in fact, ever get it spiritually, that we, we understand who he is and how to live in a relationship with him, it's, it's his grace that initiates all of it. And there is a corollary that accompanies that reality, and here it is. The more trauma you've been through or the more emotional or relational baggage we carry through this life, the harder it can be for us to open ourselves up to the intervention of God in our lives. The harder it can be to say, God, do what you want to do and just knock yourself out. Because if we've been hurt, if we've been wounded, particularly maybe by someone in authority in our lives, then the, our natural response to that is to, to kind of push back and to resist any authority, no matter how good, how perfect, no matter how loving that authority may be. And so we naturally kind of resist. I think we've all got a little bit of that in us just because of the fact that we're human beings. It's, it's what's referred to as the forbidden fruit syndrome. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like if you were thinking right now about, 
I will, I'm going to go get me a bowl of cookie two-step ice cream made by Bluebell, of course. And I said to you, right now, you have to go get some cookie two-step ice cream. You would look back at me, I'm not getting cookie two-step ice cream because I told you to go do that. You wouldn't want to do that even though you had wanted to do it right before I told you to do it. It's the forbidden fruit syndrome. It's that, it's that pushback against authority. And I think it's, it's one of the things that causes us a lot of times to maybe keep God at arm's length. It's one of those things that can cause us to, to push back against the Bible, against what God intended when he gave us the gift of Scripture. Again, as an act of grace, as an act of sovereignty and love, he has given us this gift. Last week, we started this series, The Bible for All It's Worth, and at the very beginning of this series, we kind of, I gave you a purpose statement for the Bible. You, you might remember it. I'm sure you've memorized it and thought about it all week. But we said the purpose of the Bible is to know God and to love him in everything that we do. If, if you were here last weekend, you might remember that. And listen, I believe that. I think that's good as far as it goes. But with the benefit of a week of hindsight and prayer and preparation, I think we need to kind of expand this definition of the Bible's purpose statement. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that definition and just scratch it out. Just scratch out to know God and love him in everything we do. And I want to give you what I think is maybe a more accurate, a more robust purpose statement for the Bible. The Bible's purpose is to reveal God and his invitation to relationship to reveal God and his invitation to relationship for you and for me. So whatever you want to believe about God, whatever preconceived notions or presuppositions you walked in the door with this morning, never forget that at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of the day, God is love. God is love. He is ultimately relational in every single thing that he does. He was relational before he created humanity for a relationship. Before there was ever a person on the planet or before you were ever a gleam in anybody's eye, God was already relational in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. He's always about relationship. Now, to be sure, there are some rules in the Bible, but the Bible has rules as a means to an ends and not the ends itself. A lot of times, we try to reduce Scripture to just a list of rules and regulations, and if we can discount the viability and the credibility of the Bible, then we don't have to do the rules and the regulations. But that misses the point. The point of the rules that are in the Bible that God does, in fact, give us, the point of the rules is ultimately the relationship that we're created for. Every relationship in the world has rules. From, from the most intimate relationship to the most superficial hydroplaning drive-by, there are rules for every relationship. If, if the Bible needed a subtitle, which it doesn't, if you wanted to title this sermon, you could just call it Relationship Rules. Relationship Rules. Because in God's economy, Relationship rules everything else. Relationship is the thing that drives everything God is about, including 
the Bible. It's why he has given us this incredible book. John Calvin, the great reformer and theologian, said this about the Bible. He said that Scripture is like a pair of spectacles. Scripture is like a pair of spectacles that dispels the darkness and gives us a clear view of God. Isn't that an amazing picture? That's, that's why God has given us the Bible. The Bible dispels the darkness, the unknowns, the, the things that we wonder about. How are we here? Why are we here? God has given us the Bible to dispel the darkness, but also to give us a clear picture of himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is a pillar verse. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to, you need to memorize this verse. You need to hide it in your heart in your soul, kind of take it in, ingest it, digest it, spiritually metabolize, 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what the Bible says about itself. It says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. In the original Greek, it is theonoustos. God inspired every word, every page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, to be sure, he worked through human beings who are flawed and fallible. But in his supernatural sovereignty, God communicated, God inspired people to write down his word. And what we're going to do today is just focus on that word scripture. Just, just one word, scripture. If it is God-breathed, then scripture. How did anybody decide what the Bible was going to be? Think about it. So many people have said throughout the years that, man, the Bible's just a man-made book. People People just kind of put in their stuff that fit their political agenda when they had influence at certain times in history, and we've got the Bible. Well, today, we're going to take a look at how the Bible was compiled. And i got to give you a heads up right up front. There will be parts of this message that will feel like a classroom, and in advance, I'm sorry. I am. But I'm giving you the facts so that you know why you believe what you believe. I'm giving you these facts so that you understand how we got the Bible and why it is in fact historically, textually, reliable as the word of God. Now, I know for a fact that there is some, some pushback, but I think we can kind of help to mitigate that pushback if we, if we really and truly stop and take a look at a couple of things, the first of which is the composition of the Bible. How, do, how was the Bible composed? Well, if, if you've looked at the Bible, you know that obviously there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. The word testament means a covenant, a covenant that God has with his people. There's the Old Covenant. It was initiated with God through Abraham. There's the New Covenant, which was fulfilling the Old Covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament, the New Testament, 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. And so these books were all written by 
over 40 different authors. 40 different authors. The, the Old Testament canon was written starting with Moses about 1,400 years before Christ. And the Old Testament was closed around three or 400 B.C. So, so that's, the, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament was written within a 50-year window of itself. 50-year window, you had the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have letters from Paul, these 27 books that, that make up the New Testament that were finished writing around 100 A.D., so you've got about a 1,500-year window of the composition of the Bible, when the Bible was written and who wrote the Bible. Now, what I think is really interesting is how did these 66 books make it in? Who, who decided that? We're going to talk about that just real quickly, but I want to just let you know when you talk about what books are in, what books are out, we're talking about the canon of Scripture, the canon, it's not like a big weapon. The canon comes from the Greek word for a ruler, a ruler which says this is the standard. This is, on a ruler, you think this is an inch. An inch is an inch. It's an inch here. It's an inch even in California. It's an inch even in New York. It's an inch everywhere you go because of the ruler. Well, the canon of Scripture is the ruler, the standard by which books became part of the Bible, that's the canon of Scripture, the canonization of Scripture, if you will. Now, the canonization of the Old Testament was essentially settled somewhere between 100 B.C. and about 200 A.D., it, within that window. Like I said, it was, it was written between 1400 B.C. and 400 B.C., but the settling of that canon by Jewish rabbis was settled in that window of time right there. Now, what's interesting about the Old Testament canonization, if, you, if you've ever spent any time with, with some rabbis, they love to argue. They, they, they think that's an expression of love. When you argue with a rabbi, they're like, he really loves me. And, and they love to argue amongst themselves and to debate things as an intellectual pursuit, as, as part of their engaging with God and with the community of faith. But there was enormous consensus about which books would make it into the Old Testament. Esther was on the bubble there for a little while because the name God is never used in the book of Esther, which is interesting. Ecclesiastes was a little bit on the bubble because it was just kind of pessimistic in some places, you know. But they ultimately made it in because they helped to tell the story of God. And the, the rabbi community reached a very real sense of consensus about which books were in versus which books were out around 100 B.C. or 100 A.D., somewhere in that window, which to you and me is like, well, that's 200 years. In the grand sweep of history, particularly in works of antiquity, that's the blink of an eye. They don't even bat an eye about that kind of stuff. So that, that's the Old Testament canon was settled and closed by the time or around the time that Jesus was walking on the earth. Now, the New Testament canon was also very interesting. But before we get to the New Testament, it's interesting that the Old Testament, the oldest fragments that we had of the Old Testament prior to 1947, dated to about 1100 A.D., a little over 1,000 years after Jesus was on the earth. 
we have these fragments. And when we talk about manuscripts, particularly the Old Testament, you and I think about, well, that's somebody sitting in a room typing and looking at the original, and they might have made a mistake. That does not understand the role of the scribe in Jewish life. The scribe is an office in the temple that people study for for years before they receive the title scribe. And as a matter of fact, when you write the Hebrew Bible out in Hebrew, you, you write it right to left. If you've never studied Hebrew, you should say a prayer of thanksgiving. It is so hard to learn. It has no correlation to English whatsoever. I almost left seminary because of Hebrew. But it's an amazingly evocative language. It's an amazing, very verb-driven language. And these scribes would copy. And if they made a mistake, they didn't scratch it out or use papyrus liquid paper. They threw the whole thing away and went back to the very beginning and started over again. That's how meticulously they copied the originals. That's how meticulously the word of God came down through the years. But I told you that the earliest copy before 1947. In 1947, some Bedouin shepherds, cousins, were exploring some caves down by the Dead Sea near a village called Qumran. I think we've got a map of where Qumran is. It's kind of at the top of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River flows in. It's called the Dead Sea because the salinity is so great, there's no outlet in the Dead Sea. So it holds so much salt, so much sediment that no life can exist in it. Well, in the Qumran caves, these Bedouin shepherds found some ancient jars. And within the ancient jars, they found scrolls. And they opened up the scrolls and realized they were looking at ancient Old Testament text. And they didn't know how old they were. They thought, you know, a couple hundred, 300, 400, maybe 500 years old. As a matter of fact, one of the, shep the shepherds who found the original Dead Sea Scrolls tried to sell them in a bazaar in Bethlehem for about $250. People began looking at these scrolls. Scholars began studying them and, and began to began to figure out that there was something different about these scrolls. They were carbon dated and dated by telegraphy and other means of technology to be over 2,000 years old. 2,000 years old. Not, not, not 50, not 100, not 200. 2,000 years old. And contained within these scrolls, among other things, was an almost completely preserved copy of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. As a matter of fact, now, of course, there were punctuation differences, a few grammatical differences, but in terms of content, in terms of thematic communication, it is the same book of Isaiah that we read in the Old Testament today. And it dated back to the year 100 B.C. or A.D. There was a community there in Qumran known as the Essenes, and they were, they were a very highly religious and devout community and they had copied these Old Testament texts, 2,000 years old, right at the time when Jesus was walking on the earth. As a matter of fact, only about six or 700 years since Isaiah had written the original. And here it was preserved because the air is so dry and arid, had never been exposed to water, had never been exposed to wind. And you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls validating. As a matter of fact, the entire Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, was discovered 
at Qumran, the entire Old Testament. And so you have this incredible, these incredible artifacts that support the text that we read today, the original text that the Hebrew Bible was written in, the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament obviously functioned a little bit differently. The New Testament came along, and it was written between the years 50 and 100 A.D., roughly. And there was, there was a list of three criteria that would determine whether or not books made it into the New Testament. The criteria were this, consistency. That means that if a book, if a letter, if an account of Jesus' life, if a history like the book of Acts, if it countered orthodox church teaching, orthodox doctrine, anything else that had been accepted as canon, then it was eliminated. Consistency. Number two was consensus. If the existing church fathers in that age agreed that this was authoritative, that this was reliable, that this was divinely inspired universally, then it was accepted into the canon. If there was disagreement, if there was a reason why it shouldn't be, if it was inconsistent with anything that Jesus had said, then it was thrown out. Number three is connectivity. There had to be an apostolic connection to the text, meaning that the text had to have been written by someone who was an apostle of Jesus or someone who knew an apostle of Jesus. There had to be this apostolic connection. Now, I know you're thinking, what about the Apostle Paul? He wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. He didn't walk with Jesus, but he did. He encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus personally and is listed as an apostle. So his writings that we rely on so heavily in the New Testament meet the apostolic connectivity requirement. And so you have all of these requirements that are being put on so many. Obviously, there were other writings of the New Testament early church that didn't make it into the canon but this is why these made it in and the other ones did not. And, and a great question I was asked between services was, well, who decided that? I mean, who, who, you? We're, we're gonna make you responsible? And the reality is that, number one, there weren't that many churches in 100 AD. There certainly weren't that many church leaders, bishops like Peter in Jerusalem and Origen and Irenaeus and other early church fathers, if they reached consensus, then it was incredibly reliable. And, and this, is, this is what happened in the New Testament. So you have the Old Testament canonization, you have the New Testament canonization, and hopefully right now your eyes are not glazed over. I, I hope that, that you've been able to kind of just let these facts wash over you. Feel free to fact check me somewhere. But I think it's important that we understand, remembering the history is interesting, I, I guess. You know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's cool, the this, that, and the other. But we've got to come back and remember that this was about relationship. This is ultimately about relationship. And it's important that we understand what the Bible is ultimately all about. In Isaiah 55, God says this about Scripture. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
so were my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God says, if it comes from me, you can book it. You, you can count on the fact that it will happen. It will be made real. Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it happens slowly over centuries. But it will happen. And because of this fact that relationship rules, there, there are just a couple of things that, that my prayer is that we all take from this. Number one, is that we realize the reliability of Scripture. As a follower of Christ, you don't ever have to back up from anybody who challenges the validity of the Bible. You can, you can stand with confidence and hopefully kindness, don't be a jerk about it, but be confident that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. Now, you can't prove that. that take, that's a statement of faith. But historically, Linguistically, it is absolutely reliable. As a matter of fact, much more reliable than any other book or writing or literature from antiquity. So recognize the reliability of Scripture. Just tell your neighbor right now, you better recognize. Just recognize it. But the second thing, I think, becomes a lot harder. And that is that we authorize the authority of Scripture, that we authorize the authority of Scripture in our own lives. Now, if I may say this, the authority of Scripture is there. The question becomes, will I authorize it in my life? Will I give it that authority? Will I give it that room to breathe? And I alluded to this earlier in the service, but I think it's really important that we come back to this and, and again, if authority is a bad word to you, I get it. I understand. A lot of people, a lot of people have been wounded by authority. And if that's you, I, I'm, I'm sorry that whoever had authority in your life didn't take the responsibility seriously and they, they leveraged it against you. And I, I would suggest to you that though it's not your fault, it now becomes your responsibility to not let that beat you again. You know, they, they say in sports, don't, don't, don't let them beat you twice. Meaning, if you lose a game this week, don't become so down about it. Don't become so dejected, so discouraged that you let that, that loss that week cause you to lose the next week. And I would tell you the same thing. If you've been wounded by authority, understand that that's not God. As a matter of fact, there is nothing to fear in the authority of God. The, the Bible says, taste and see that he is good. Is he an authority? Yes. Does he judge? Yes. And in Christ, there's nothing to fear. To, to recognize the reliability of Scripture, to authorize the authority of Scripture in our lives. And, and I, I got to tell you something. 
this, this came home to roost for me in a, in a really powerful way just a few years ago. I've, I've been following Christ now for a little more than a minute. I was seven years old when I accepted Christ, when I trusted him for the forgiveness of my sins. But I was deep into my 40s the first time I went to Israel. And in Israel, we had been there for about 10 days, touring, hiking, walking, seeing, you know, literally walking where Jesus walks. It's an amazing, amazing experience. But on the last day of the trip, we were in Jerusalem, and we, we went to the Israel Museum. And the last thing that we came to in the Israel Museum is a building that's kind of in the heart of the campus, and it's a building called the Shrine of the Book. I think we've got a picture of it. People in, people in Jerusalem say it looks like an onion, but it's actually designed, by the way, by American architects, it's designed to resemble the top of one of those jars that was discovered in the Qumran cave. And there in the shrine of the book is a museum, kind of the holding place for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you walk into this, this building, and it kind of, it's this kind of small, narrow tunnel that they designed to kind of make you feel like you're in the cave at Qumran. And they've got, they've got a lot of different artifacts from the Essenes who were the ones who wrote and, and transcribed the book of Isaiah. But when you get to the middle of the building, you get to the middle of the building and you walk in and there's this massive, massive top of a scroll handle is what it looks like. And around the handle of the scroll is a perfect replica of the book of Isaiah that was found there in Qumran. Now, it's not the actual book of Isaiah because it's in a you know, climate-controlled environment to, for safekeeping. But I walked into this room, and I, I thought of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, which was written about 650 years before Jesus was born, but Isaiah 7 says, The virgin... The virgin will conceive and she will give birth to a son. And she will call him Emmanuel. God with us. And as I stood there in that room looking at the manuscript of Isaiah, I just started praying over and over again. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. The word Jesus, he, the word became flesh. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He became one of us. And we have beheld his glory. The glory as from the Father, the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The word became flesh flesh, and I was overwhelmed by the goodness of God. I was overwhelmed by the power and the durability of his word because the word became flesh. The word became flesh. He reveals himself in the word. 
And he reveals, he reveals his invitation to relationship. And so just like the rules are not the point, the facts are, are not the point about the Bible, but man, the facts show us that the, the word is reliable. The facts show us that we can stand up intellectually, mentally. We can love God with all of our heart, soul, and our mind. And we don't have to back up to anybody intellectually on this planet when it comes to trusting this book. Because ultimately, this book is not about trusting the book. It's about trusting the point of the book. Remember we said last week the Old Testament was preparation for Jesus. The New Testament was explanation of how to live in relationship with him. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I wanna just ask you a simple question. Have you begun a relationship with the Word made flesh, with Jesus? It's yes or no. You have or you haven't. If you haven't, then as a church family, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now, to pray right where you are, just silently talk to God, just silently say something like this, Jesus, I need you. I choose to believe based on the facts of your word, the facts of your resurrection from the dead that you are the savior of the world. And so I ask you to be my savior. I confess my sin to you because there's nothing to fear in you. You are my judge, but you are my forgiver. And so I will follow you from this moment forward. I want to realize your reliability. I want to authorize your authority in and through my life. And I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a church, we celebrate that with you. We honor that. And if that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand as a statement of faith. A statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. Hold your hand up. And know that as a church family, we honor that. We celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is, as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.